Greetings, science and logic lovers. Welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week, we try to meet with an expert guest to discuss topics in a reasoned and scientific manner. Our topics can range from breaking science to common misconceptions or just discussing things going on in the world from a reasoned and evidence-based viewpoint. We try to break it down to a level that everyone can enjoy and understand and even appreciate. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn about how science can get in your genes. Hey guys, just wanted to let you know that if you like A Dash of Science, there are many ways you can support it. You can find us on iTunes and leave us a review, which helps us get more exposure. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dash of science for as little as $1 a month. There are several tiers with benefits for you to check out. This helps us afford hosting, get better equipment, and maybe in the future help to get us to conventions and other such things where we can expand our guest speaker network. Lastly, share our podcast and our Facebook page with your friends. In other news, we got a comment the other day asking if we will ever be doing a show for, quote, peasants and common folk, unquote. <laughs> well, I'd like to think that we are bringing these topics down to a level that can be appreciated for everyone, but if that's not the case, please let me know. I'm also very open to topic suggestions, so if you have an idea on something you'd like us to talk about that you want to hear about, please leave us a comment at facebook.com slash dash of science. In this week's episode, we'll talk to Cassandra Michalicki Salas, a friend of mine who works as a, a clinical cytoneticist specifically dealing with cancer-related treatment and research. We talk a bit about cancer, gene splicing, and stem cell science in hopes of answering some questions and correcting some misconceptions. All right, everybody, we're here with Cassandra Mekelke Salas. Uh, tell me I got that right. I've been practicing. You did it. It's perfect. Excellent. I will never say it again, so I have a perfect record. Uh, <laughs> we're talking One today about, about genetics and... Uh, uh, gene splicing and stem cells and that kind of stuff. Uh, and why don't you tell us a little about uh, a little bit about yourself? Uh, kind of maybe what you do and how you got started in it. Um, so I have my degree in genetics and cell biology, and I've just always enjoyed um, science and biology, especially. Um, what I do now is I'm a clinical cytogeneticist, so I get uh, metaphase spreads, I get pictures of chromosomes, and I go through and make sure that they're all normal. And if there's something wrong with them, I categorize the abnormality, and that lets the uh, clinician make better judgments about what sort of treatment the patient should have, or if there's, because uh, sometimes there's specialized drugs for certain types of cancer that they can take that specifically target the, the issue being caused by the genetic uh, abnormality. So that's pretty much what I do all day is just uh, go through people's genes and look for, for mistakes. I'll make sure and put that as a tagline that uh, you go through people's genes as a living. Perfect. Definitely <laughs> digging around in people's genes. <laughs> so is when you were going to school, was that kind of what you wanted to get into or is it you just kind of fall into that or how'd that happen? I originally wanted to be either a horse breeder or a veterinarian. And then I think it was in a general biology class, we watched a video about genetics and specifically epigenetics and epigenetic research. 
And I just thought that was so cool and went and looked into it a little more and, and read about it and just switched my major um, to genetics and cell biology. And it's been just that ever since. And I love it. It's so much fun. That seems like kind of a major switch. Was there a big difference in, I mean, obviously you had to take more genetics classes, but I guess maybe the difficulty of classes, was it kind of a culture shock or how, how was that? Uh, because I switched fairly early. It was a general bio class where I saw that video. So essentially what I had to do was, yes, take, I had to take more specialized genetics classes. I took um, human genetics and, and mammalian physiology, stuff like that. But the difficulty, I think, was probably on par with any other biology degree. And since I wasn't trying to go to vet school anymore, I didn't have to take OCHEM 2, which was probably a lifesaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of bad things about that. Really happy I didn't yeah. have to take that class either. So uh, another friend of mine is actually a microbiologist. I was talking, or uh, is it a microbiologist? Not a microbiologist, a molecular, molecular biologist. biologist. There we go. And we were kind of talking about that a little bit. What's, so what would you say is the difference between what you do and a molecular biologist? Uh, what I do is on a much more macro scale. We, Me specifically, I look at things a little more generally. I'm just looking to see is part of the chromosome missing or did it move somewhere? A molecular biologist, depending on their specialization, is going to be getting more into the guts of the cell and, and looking really closely at like the nitty gritty of things. So I, I have more like a broad overview of what's going on. A molecular biologist would look really focus in on maybe just one gene or one protein, whereas I'm looking at more the big picture of what's going on in the patient. Okay. So in your job, I mean, you're on the internet and you come across people. What would you say is probably some of the biggest misunderstandings about, I guess, genetic topics and maybe your specific job that you hear a lot? Um, I think, honestly, the biggest misunderstandings about genetics seem to come from sci-fi. And um, especially for the topic we're going to go over, you know, the stem cells or gene splicing, people kind of seem to think that it's, you know, we're heading for X-Men or some sort <laughs> of like mutant killer virus from irresponsible scientists or something like that. And uh, other than that, people seem to have a pretty solid understanding. The biggest, I think, obstacle for understanding genetics is just all the jargon and, and the really technical knowledge that you need to wrap your head around it. But most people have no problem understanding it once they get through that part. But for me, honestly, because my job involves cancer, I get more questions about cancer than I do about genetics. And uh, is it like questions that you feel like you can handle or is it just off the wall questions? Usually it's honestly people, hands down, the, the question I get the most is why isn't there a cure for cancer? Or do you think there's a cure for cancer and big pharma is hiding it? It's really the top two questions I get about oh yes <laughs> big pharma you gotta love the, the big, big you know pharma big GMO big big whatever yes. it is depending on the conspiracy theories have you ever been accused of being part of big pharma um not not me directly no usually it's well, like good. friends and family members asking me so they they tend to be nice to me and I tell them no there's no big pharma that I'm aware of 
<laughs> they haven't been sending you checks at least yeah <laughs> right i know if they are it's going to an old address or something i'm not getting my shill checks <laughs> well that's good to know now we know we can trust you <laughs> but uh so how long have you been working in this field did you say i started working in this field in 2011 late 2011 and i was originally just a lab tech, so I was doing all of the, the wet work, prepping the specimens and getting it ready for the analysis portion. And two and a half years ago, I got into a training program to get my specialist license and took a really obnoxious test um, to be allowed to do the analysis <laughs> portion. And I've been doing that uh, licensed, so solo without somebody looking over my shoulder for like a year and a half now. So I'm still relatively new inside of genetics. Well, that sounds like you put a lot of work in it. I remember uh, hearing about your studying and your anxiety over the tests and all that. So I'm glad that all worked out for you. Oh, me too. I don't know what I would have done if I failed that test. It was such a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. So uh, back to the questions that you asked, uh, why isn't there a cure for cancer yet? Well, the, the biggest issue is that when you say cancer, we kind of refer to all different types of cancer as just cancer. Um, I work specifically with leukemia and lymphoma patients, and even for just those two categories, uh, there's, I think it's something like 800 different um, disease state codes that they can give us to ask us to look for different things. Uh, you can have the same type of cancerous issue, but different mutations in the DNA. So in some cases, it's a really easy treatment. And in other cases, you're going to need a bone marrow transplant. So, and that's just with leukemia and lymphoma. When you go into any other type of cancer, there's so many variables and there's so many things that can go wrong that there really is never going to be just one sort of magic bullet cure for cancer. So okay. I think uh, that's something that people have a lot of, a lot of confusion about is sometimes people misunderstand like all of cancer is one thing. So the different types of cancer, are they defined by where they, where they attack uh, do, is where they're at in the body. To, uh, is there a different way that they, I guess the mechanics behind how it works per se? Yeah, so um, like in breast cancer, some breast cancers are very sensitive to estrogen. And so you can combat the tumor by putting women on hormone replacements that prevent the estrogen levels from uh, changing too much and getting to the point where it causes the tumor to grow. Other breast cancers in the same tissue that are behaving nearly the same way do not care about estrogen levels at all. Don't, it doesn't matter what you do, you're just at that point messing with hormones for no reason. So even very closely related cancers can have drastically different treatments because cancer as a concept is just the idea of a cell with runaway growth. The things that can cause that runaway growth are massively varied. Um, you can have a tumor suppressor gene because we do have mistakes in our DNA replication and in our cell division. It happens, it's normal. There are genes that specifically go 
um, make proteins for things that look for those mistakes and take care of it. If one of the genes that regulates, uh, you know, checking for errors is mutated, then it's not looking for errors either. So then if you get an error that tells the cell, hey, you, when you bump up against your buddies, you've got enough space, stop dividing. If that gets turned off and your sort of editor-in-chief genes also are messed up, then that cell is just going to grow forever. And you're going to have to treat that cell differently than something that uh, just grows really slowly but lives forever. So cancer is a very broad term, and the more you zero in on specific types of cancer, the more varied and different they become. So that's why there's no one cure for cancer, because you can't cure a general term like that. Do you think that it would do the public good to maybe stop referring to cancer as a thing overall and start specifically talking about, you know, specific names of specific cancers as they are separate things? Do you think that might help? I think it would be good for, I'm not, I don't want to put the onus on the public to learn all of the different types of cancer, but I think probably researchers and cancer institutes need to do a better job of making it clear that, uh, like, uh, you know, if they're researching breast cancer or they're trying to cure breast cancer, what type of breast cancer, you know, what type of prostate cancer am I donating to? What sort of leukemia, you know, does this actor have or, or whatever? Like if people were taking more responsibility in their reporting and their dissemination of information to make it clear that this is a big complicated thing, I think people would, one, understand it better, and two, maybe we would have fewer people thinking that Big Pharma is hiding the cure. That's an interesting thing, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. Before this conversation, I didn't even realize that there were numerous types of prostate cancer and numerous types of breast cancer, etc. Like, I thought, you know, the cancer was basically where it's at in the body, and that's the type that it is. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. it's still more complex than all cancers the same, but it's nowhere near as complex as what, you know, you're saying that it actually is. So that's good to know. Uh, thanks for, for talking about that. Yeah, it was, so, it was very surprising to me um, when I started working in this field because it was just it was amazing that we would have somebody come in for possible mds or possible cll and then there'd be six or seven different abnormalities that could mean that and all of those abnormalities indicated a different type of treatment and some of them we you know we would hope that they had that abnormality because that was like an easy treatment and others would have a different one and everybody would be kind of upset about it because that's not a good treatment. So it's it's very detailed and very complicated. And I think uh, the public would benefit from understanding that and maybe would be more interested in, you know, furthering more research if they realize what a beast it is. And it's not just a, a sort of, like you said, it's a localized problem. It's, it's that, but what is what is causing it to grow out of control? That can be a lot of different things. And that doesn't even account for uh, you know, metastatic tumors where a cancer cell from your liver breaks off and lodges in your lung. It doesn't become a lung cell. It's still a liver cell. So you start growing liver cancer cell in your lung, which then messes up 
all of your regular lung. And you have to address that differently because now the cancer is in different places. So you can't just use radiation. You're going to have to use chemo. So it's, it can be very, very complicated, very, very weird, and very frustrating for people who are having to go through it. Yeah, it really sounds like it. That's that's crazy. Like, I mean, you know, when you get into the heavy science of stuff, it's always going to become complex. But yeah, I had no idea that that's a uh, that's how deep down that goes, essentially. But uh, yeah, so... I'm sure your molecular biologist guest will be able to uh, kind of show you how crazy complicated biology gets. They work on some tiny little detailed stuff. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a break here, and then when we come back, we'll start talking about gene splicing. Awesome. Sounds good. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. If you guys are interested in talking with me or some of the guests we have on the show, you can join us in our Discord chat. There's a permanent invite to the chat in our Facebook page and in the show notes. You can check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science. If you guys haven't yet, check out the site theironkiwi.com. This site creates and sells art to help support my girlfriend, who was diagnosed with Huntington's disease several years ago. Proceeds are shared with the Huntington's Disease Society of America. If you enjoy the show but want to participate more in the subjects, we frequently live record and stream to Twitch. Usually we do this Friday evenings around 7pm PST, but we always post on our Facebook page before we go live. So check us out at twitch.tv slash physicistchris to ask questions live during our recordings. We're talking with Cassandra, a cytogeneticist, about genetics. Up next, we delve into the topic of gene splicing, what it is, how it's done, and why we aren't curing all the diseases right now with this technique. So, uh, gene splicing, right? What, what is it? So, gene splicing is uh, essentially when you are taking a gene that you are interested in and putting it someplace where it didn't originate. So, you can take genes from one type of bacteria, put them in another type of bacteria, or in same bacteria that doesn't have that gene. You can take genes from a spider and put them in a goat. You can really do a lot of super crazy stuff, but essentially the the really broad overview of it is we take a gene from someplace else and we put it in a specific spot in some other creature for some crazy reason. <laughs> Usually hopefully <laughs> not all crazy reasons. <laughs> Well, you know, some of them sound pretty crazy. I'm not making up that you can put spider genes in goats. They do that. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Uh, crazy yeah, it's... crazy reasons is a real real definition for it. So I'll, I'll take yep. that. Yep. So I guess we should take a step back and maybe maybe describe what is a gene in and of itself. Yeah, so a gene is uh, essentially, you can look at it couple of ways. A gene is either a unit of information that is hereditary, um, it's heritable, you get it from your parents, you pass it to your children, it's something that you want. In the other sense, it's, uh, to get a little more specific, it's a sequence of nucleotides that codes for a specific protein that 
we need in order to function or you know, build our cells um, and, and everything that has DNA uses it in that way to build its cells and its hormones and its chemicals. Everything that you are and that you have in you comes from your DNA and specifically from your genes. Does that mean that every every distinguishable characteristic about ourself has a gene that it comes from? Uh, it either has a gene specifically or a combination of genes that interact to, to make all of your uh, characteristics. So it's not always as simplistic as we learned in, in biology in high school where there's, you know, the the blue-eyed gene specifically or whatever. The, sometimes there's a combination of genes that, that act together? Yes, yes. Um, you can have one gene that controls one thing. It's a yes or no type question. Or you can have multiple genes that interact with each other. Um, for example, off the top of my head, I know that in order for someone to be a redhead, it's not just they have the gene for red hair. There's a couple of different genes have to interact. They all have to be present in the right um, amount in order for red hair to be made. Otherwise, you just end up with, you know, blonde or brown or some other probably Anglo-Saxon colored hair. Uh, red hair is like a rare kind of strange combination of genes going on. Okay. So I now I've heard, and, and if this is outside your realm of, of expertise, that's fine, but like... Uh, like your skin color, your eye color, and your hair color also have a lot to do with how much melanin you have. Now, is the melanin production, is that something that's controlled by the gene, or is that like a secondary thing that plays into it? Yeah, so melanin production is controlled um, by your genes. Specifically, the amount of melanin that's just usually uh, present in your skin. So that's why we aren't all born as like, pale, creepy, albino, you know, looking cave <laughs> children, because we, you know, we have skin color that's coded for. Um, and then the reaction to the sun that causes tanning is though the melanin producing cells creating the melanin to help protect you from the sun. The amount and density of those cells, though, is uh, determined by your genetics. But we all have them. Oh, I didn't know that part. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, I'm learning new stuff here left and right. So uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when we talk about genes, I, I see some other terminologies that I don't always know what they refer to. And, and please correct me if I pronounce them wrong, but I think uh, like alleles, is that right? Is that right? Yeah. So alleles are, it's just a way to describe uh, like the version of a gene. So if you, if we're, going real simple and we're saying there's a brown-eyed gene and a blue-eyed gene, those are going to be in the same location on the chromosome, and so those are alleles. They're different versions of the same thing. Is that the same as saying how a gene presents itself? I think there's a different term for it that I'm forgetting, but uh, the, I oh, guess the variations. Yeah. So the actual makeup and the code of your genes is your genotype. And how that's expressed, whether or not you have blue eyes or black hair or you know, tan skin or really dark skin, that's your phenotype. That's what the organism looks like or presents its proteins that are coded for by the genotype. Ah, okay. So it's not it's not exactly the same. It's different then. No. All They're right. related though. Uh, 
<laughs> well, hopefully it's all related. Otherwise, I've gone way off topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what about Hox gene? I, that's a term that I came across that I've never actually heard of before. What is that? Yeah, so Hox genes are pretty cool, actually. They are sort of a subset of genes that are totally critical for the proper development of an organism along the craniopodal or head-to-tail axis. So the Hox genes are why we have a head and feet and not just sort of a blob of you know brain and flesh. Um, all Almost all animals, I think actually all animals, have some Hox genes or uh, many Hox genes. And if you fiddle with those, like in the case of fruit fly research, you can get like legs to grow where antenna should be and wings where their legs should be because the Hox genes are, they're, they're sort of the, the initial blueprint layers for the cells. And they tell the cells, okay, you in this area, you're going to be the head, you're going to be the torso, and you're going to be the back end. And these need to be leg spots. If you mess with those, then everything just goes haywire. So Hox genes are a really cool uh, family of genes that help us develop into functional organisms. Okay, so like when I used to get my wingless fruit flies for my uh, fire belly toads, that's essentially they were modifying these hox genes so that they wouldn't develop wings. Is that what they were doing? They either would have modified the hox gene or they would have done gene, spl uh, gene splicing to knock out the gene for wing development. Okay, so what's the difference between those two processes then? So if you, you can deactivate a hox gene and essentially silence it, um, and that would cause it to not produce wings. The issue is that Hox genes are pretty complicated, and they have other effects. They're very rarely just do one thing. So in that case, you'd probably get a bunch of other mutations that you may not want um, if you're trying to sell them to people. Not everybody wants like really nasty-looking mutant flies. You know, so uh, it would be easier to just go in, splice out the gene that says make wings, and then the flies would be totally normal and they would develop normally. They just wouldn't have the code to make wings, so they wouldn't. Oh, okay. So uh, what are kind of some other terminologies that get tossed around that may be of use to uh, define here? Well, if we're going to be talking about uh, gene splicing and gene silencing and stem cells, then um, a really important term is homologous recombination. And that is when the nucleotide sequences or two similar or identical strands of DNA are exchanged. So in the case of a production of a sperm cell or an egg cell, they undergo what's called crossing over where swap information back and forth. And it makes, it, it's what helps us have so much uh, one phenotypic diversity, but also more importantly, genetic diversity so that we're all not all just clones of each other because that's never a good system for an organism. Because if anything goes wrong in your environment, now you're all equally susceptible to it. So you want to be able to mix and match homologous recombination is, is mechanism by which they do that. It's also used in repairing double-stranded DNA breaks, which can happen um, 
just like if you get a sunburn, you'll have double-stranded DNA breaks and your body will go around and find all of the cells that have those breaks and it will pair it up with a unbroken segment and check to make sure that they're the same. And if they're not, it'll swap it over, get rid of the damaged parts. So homologous recombination is a really vital tool in sort of understanding how we can manipulate genes is, is there is already a natural mechanism that lets us, uh, we get to kind of hijack the cell's machinery and get it to swap genes out for us. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the body itself has a essentially a healing or repairing function on the genetic level on its own? Yes. Yes. Several. Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Again, something new. <laughs> so uh, so this is kind of the same process, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, that why two people can have multiple kids and they look completely different. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. Because no two sperm or egg cells are the same because of this crossing over. And so sometimes you'll have lots of recombination, lots of swapping, and sometimes you'll have just a little bit. And remembering that sperm and egg cells only get half of the genetic material from each parent. So even then you're splitting it even more. Okay. So there was a, uh, a meme I saw running around that I wanted to ask you about. That, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. it says that if uh, two identical twins marry t another set of identical twins, their children mm -hmm. will be siblings on a genetic level? Oh, yeah. Yes, that is actually genetically true. Because identical twins are clones of each other. So if a person marries another person and they're genetic clones do the same thing. As far as level of relatedness, those children of the two sets of twins would be genetic siblings. And that comes just from because siblings have a certain percentage of shared uh, traits or genes, except not that they're exactly the same, correct? Right, right. Um, they would have to be identical twins to be exactly the same, but they would the sibling, if, if each couple had two kids, each kid would have as much genetic information in common with their actual sibling as they did with their cousins. Man, that's crazy. I wonder how often that happens. Yeah, I think it's, it's happened a couple of times, I think. Just a handful in, like, recorded history have, have like, identical twins married identical twins. Yeah, no, thank you. I'll pass on that one. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, people look the same. Like, <laughs> yeah, get a little weird around the holidays, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. So uh, when we have uh, mapping, we've got genetic mapping and we have physical mapping. What's kind of the difference mm -hmm. between those two things? So genetic mapping is based on the frequency that genes will recombine with each other. So again, this is that homologous recombination thing. So genes that recombine with each other often or recombine in groups will be mapped closer together than genes that don't. Whereas physical mapping is the actual position of the gene on the DNA strand, usually separated by how many base pairs are in between them. So a really easy way to think about it is uh, you know the you know when you look at a subway map 
it's very mm -hmm. clean and well organized and everything is super clear where the lines you know where the the track lines intersect if you look at what that map is physically representing it's usually much different looking it'll be like stretched out and it's a huge mess and it's very hard to read so when you're look because when you're looking at where you want to get to you don't care how far away it is because you're on the subway you don't you're just going to sit there until you get to your station you want to know how many stops to your station and where do you intersect so that's kind of like what uh, the genetic map is showing you it's not showing you oh these are 750 base pairs apart it's showing you these recombine very frequently so it's it's an okay. easier way to look at the data without having to worry about all of the extra stuff in between them okay that makes sense so we kind of talked about gene splicing it and you kind of did a, a great job explaining what it is but when you're talking about splicing we're not talking about like going in like a surgeon and physically cutting things because these are you know microscopic entities so how what what do they use to actually do the splicing how does that process work so um again we hijack the, the cell's natural sort of uh mechanism so you take the gene that you want and you can actually if you know the sequence you can just build the gene um one nucleotide at a time which takes a while but you can do it so you take that, you cut it out of wherever it is. So say uh, we want to get, so for, I'll just use the goats with the spider DNA example. If you, What they wanted was they wanted to be able to get the goats to produce spider silk in their milk. So they just took the gene out of the spider that coded for the spider silk protein, and they put it in the goat around in the same section of genes and with the same activator as when the goat was lactating. So then whenever the goat DNA sent the signal to the mammary glands, hey, make milk, it also made this spider silk protein because they had put that in with the milk genes, the proteins to make milk, you know, uh, lactose and all of that good stuff, and made sure that it had the right promoter region to be activated when the goat was going to make milk anyway. So the way that you do that is you essentially you have to use what's called a restriction enzyme and it's a very specific um, enzyme that goes in and it cuts the DNA at a really specific spot and then you put your DNA chunk in there and usually the way you have to do that is you have to stress the cell so that it will become accepting of um, foreign DNA. You have to make the membrane porous because otherwise it just does not let it in. And then you cut, so you cut the DNA and you get your piece of DNA in there. And then the cell's natural mechanism will see that DNA that you've prepared to attach to the spot that you wanted it to cut. And it'll say, oh, what are you doing floating around out here? And it will put it in the section that you want it in sometimes okay. sometimes it doesn't work <laughs> sometimes it, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's, so when it's you say stress the cell what does that mean uh so you can in the case of bacteria you can um put them in a chemical bath you can electrocute them was how we used to do it and it's essentially anything to 
cause the cell membrane to weaken enough that the usual very regulated channels of intake and outtake along the cell membrane are disrupted and you essentially create holes in the cell so that hopefully your DNA will kind of float in there. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. So let me ask you this question. Uh, Homo sapiens, we've been around for about 200,000 years and, and for the most part doing just fine without, you know, gene splicing and, and these and this genetics and stuff. So why do we need this? Um, so gene splicing and genetics helps, will, will allow us to do a lot of things to potentially ease people's suffering, um, to make better food sources. We may one day be able to build synthetic life to serve specific purposes that we need. Um, I mean, we could potentially, for example, they worked on building bacteria that will eat, uh, oil. So when there's like a, you know, an oil spill in a gulf somewhere, they can just release this bacteria and it will eat up all the oil. And then when there's no more oil, it'll just starve to death and die, you know, and that would be a much more effective way to clean up oil than what we have currently, which is sort of wait for it to wash ashore and get filtered out on its own and then scoop up all the sand and throw it away. Um, it's not not super effective so there's stuff like that and then there's situations where maybe somebody has a disease but it's just being caused because of gene or they develop a cancer and so uh what we need to do is just go in and say okay what's what's happened is we're missing this gene that would normally keep this cancer from happening we can just go in chop that chromosome open, stick that gene back in there, because we probably have the copy from either their other chromosome that's just not doing the job, or uh, we know what the gene is, so we can just make it artificially. They're not going to reject it, because it's not like a tissue transplant. It doesn't have anything for them to, for the body to recognize as foreign. It's just basic data. So if somebody has cancer because they're missing a gene, or they have muscular dystrophy, gene they have cystic fibrosis because they have mutated gene we can go in cut that gene out and put new genes in that work properly okay so some of these gene disorders obviously i i think that i mean you had a great point on it's not just health and disorder issues that these genetics and gene splicing help us it's developing you know organisms to help us more efficiently deal with life essentially you know like you're talking about the oil spills and that's a great point to make but when we're talking about the gene disorders specifically now there's there's several different types of of uh gene disorders i think like i was reading there's single gene uh, chromosomal, like what, what's, what's the difference in those? So single gene is uh, exactly what it sounds like. You have one gene, there's something wrong with it, and it creates a disordered protein. Uh, examples of this are things like cystic fibrosis or uh, sickle cell anemia. It's just where something is wrong. It's making the wrong protein or it's making uh, a very short version of the protein or a very long version of the protein. It just doesn't work the way that it needs to in the body. So that's a single gene disorder. It's where you have one gene, messed up, it's not working properly. Multifactorial disorders or complex disorders 
are usually caused by they're a combination of environmental factors and multiple gene mutations. It's kind of like the perfect storm sort of scenario where if it was just one or the other, it might not happen, but you kind of get all this stuff happening at once and suddenly everything just goes, you know, tits up. So you like um, cancer or Alzheimer's are multifactorial diseases. If you get skin cancer because you've got sunburned over and over again or never use sunblock, that is an environmental situation causing repeated damage to multiple parts of your DNA that it can no longer keep up with repairing and then you get a melanoma type cancer or some other skin cancer. By itself, if the sunburn had not caused the amount of damage, then you wouldn't have gotten it. If you hadn't gotten the sunburn, then you wouldn't have gotten it. These are things that have multiple reasons why it happened and there's usually lots of stuff going on. Um, chromosomal disorders are usually when all or part of a chromosome is either missing or you have an extra one. The most familiar example to most people is uh, trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. And it's literally just that they have an extra chromosome 21. There's nothing wrong with any of their chromosomes. They just have an extra one. And so they make more of the proteins that are on chromosome 21. And that is what causes tissue development differences that we see in patients with Down syndrome. And then, so finally, mitochondrial disorders, kind of, they're really actually pretty terrible because mitochondria are so important for normal cell function that when you have any sort of disorder, either the mitochondria itself is mutated and so doesn't function properly, or the nuclear DNA that is providing uh, building blocks to the mitochondria or instructions to the mitochondria, if that's damaged, then the mitochondria isn't getting the information it needs, and so it just doesn't do anything. These diseases usually lead to uh, some sort of degenerative disease in pretty much any tissue. So different muscular dystrophies, blindness, deafness, neuropathy, seizures. It's really, really not a good thing to have mutations in anything having to do with mitochondria because they are ubiquitous in the body and really important and so those i'm not as familiar with but they're usually fairly simple. okay so when you're dealing with these i would assume that single gene would be the least complex and easiest to solve uh, would that which which would you say is probably the hardest would it be a mitochondrial or would it be the multifactorial ones the probably the mitochondrial and the multifactorial are going to be the most difficult because with mitochondrial problems, it's going to be every cell is going to have that problem. You very rarely would have a cell have some sort of mutation, like a spontaneous mutation in the mitochondrial pathway, and then manage to cause problems because cells have kind of a, they have a self-destruct button where if enough stuff is going wrong, there are genes that activate and say, whoa, okay, this is too much of a mess and they just kill the cell. So a cell with a mitochondrial problem is eventually just going to probably die on its own if it's just a random sort of one-off mutation. If 
all of the cells have a mitochondrial problem that wasn't severe enough to kill the organism during development, that means that you will have to do your gene therapy in every cell in the entire body. Uh, same with the complex disorders. Uh, usually they aren't as widespread as uh, mitochondrial disorders, like for example, Alzheimer's or cancers, but they tend to be very aggressive. And because they're already mutated and have already sort of been set off by these environmental factors, they're very hard to stop because there's no rules anymore. They, the cells just do whatever they want and they're constantly evolving, constantly mutating. We will sometimes get repeat patients that will have a totally, totally new set of abnormalities that we did the time before when we analyzed them just because things are starting to tumble out of control and the cells are damaging themselves as they replicate because all of those regulator genes are not in place. Okay. So when we're talking about like, I, I always see in the media, they're talking about, oh, we have this new research that, you know, gene splicing is going to cure this, it's going to cure that. And I see that stuff all the time. But I, as far as actual procedures that are going on now that are that are medically available to people for certain disease, are there very many of them that are actively being done or are they still mostly in the research phase? They are, I think, mostly in the research animal testing phases because they're very complicated which i mean hopefully at this point it's, that picture is kind of emerging that there's a lot there's a lot of dna there's a lot of genes and they will try to stop you if you mess with them um which is good because that's how our dna preserves its fidelity but it's also bad when we're trying to fiddle with it because it, it fights back so we also don't, despite having done the human genome mapping, we don't know for sure what all of those genes do, and we don't always know where they are. So that makes it difficult. Sometimes you're just trying to track down what gene is causing a problem or what version of a gene is causing a problem, because not all mutations are um, detrimental our genetic code is redundant. And so we can have mutations that don't change the protein at all. They're called silent mutations. And it just means that instead of having an A here, we have a T instead, but as far as protein production is concerned, it's the same. The other okay. issue is there's the ethical issue of testing on humans that is always very sticky and is important that it's done properly because if you rush testing on something you can really hurt people especially when you're messing with the uh, instructions that make them who they are so we want to be really careful with that and the last issue is really just the technological barriers I mean, we only i mean when did we sequence the genome like the 80s or the 90s it hasn't been that long since we finally were able to see this is the whole human genome so we just really don't have technology yet to be absolutely sure that if we go to cut this gene out that we will get that gene and that our gene will go to that spot because sometimes if you're not careful with your restriction enzymes it can end up somewhere totally random that won't be good so especially because we want to use it on humans people are going very slowly and 
very carefully with it. So that's why we hear about the stuff, but we don't really see it because they think they can do it and they're pretty sure and it's working, but there's still that hurdle of we have to get it through human testing to prove that we're not going to accidentally kill anybody. Yeah, that's probably a good thing overall, uh, you know, but yeah, you, get, you get some people that are there and they're they're not too worried about it when they're at the end, you know, and they're suffering. They It seems like they're willing to try anything, but I think we have a responsibility as a society to to ensure that it's still going to be safe. So Exactly. We, we need to make sure that we are not irresponsibly using our terminally ill citizens as guinea pigs. We need to be fairly certain the procedure that they're going to undergo is actually going to so we kind of talked about all the stuff that hopefully uh, gene splicing will be able to accomplish in, in the future. Is there stuff that it can't do that people seem to be having misconceptions about or that that I guess are probably maybe not the best way to do it? Um, so with re if we had perfect technology and we were really just experts in the genome and where everything was and what it did, Gene splicing and gene silencing probably handle most of the genetic diseases disorders that we uh, that we see today. The difficulty right now is just learning how to target specific gene that we are looking for. Or the, I mean, in the example of uh, trisomy twenty one, we could say, okay, well, let's just silence that chromosome. Well, there's two other ones that we can't silence. So, but they, but from a chemical level, they all look exactly the same. So we have to figure out how to just turn one of those off in order to not get the disease state, um, if that was the goal. So because the genetic code is redundant, because we have two chromosomes and so we have two copies of everything, it can be very difficult to make sure that you're only affecting the thing that you want to affect. If we can unlock that, we have a lot of potential. I honestly can't think, with with my level of knowledge on genetic engineering and gene splicing, I can't really see any big obvious, oh, we'd never be able to do that, it would never work type scenarios. Other than, you know, building like a X-Men subaquatic, you know, water-breathing human. I think that would probably be pretty darn difficult. But, you know, as far as getting rid of your cystic fibrosis or... Um, making sure that that, you know, baby that has a gene for a heart defect will just go in, we'll replace that out, and it'll be born with a normal heart. I totally think that that's within our reach once we um, get a better understanding of the topic. Okay, so that kind of leads into my next question. We talked a lot about fixing problems that we have that aren't necessarily supposed to be that way, but you kind of touched on what about enhancing? And and obviously you'd mentioned like the super high X-Men superpowered isn't necessarily probable, but what about just minor enhancements, making it a little stronger, making it a little more resilient, you know, that kind of stuff? I actually, I read an article about how might in the future use a gene therapy to help us adapt to conditions on our planet that we currently have trouble um, existing in. So, you know, it took a really long time for all of us to have different skin colors and different eye shapes and different bone densities. It took hundreds of thousands of years. If, let's say, um, 
some sort of like an asteroid hit the moon and so then the moon was doing weird things with the tide and it like drastically changed the face of the planet we could potentially use if our gene therapy was advanced enough at that point we could create a generation of humans that would be maybe better swimmers or they would less oxygen or they'd be more adapted to more oxygen you know whatever the environment was because all of those genes are available somewhere or another in either our genome or another animal's genome and so we could potentially fiddle with our dna in order to help us adapt to our environment faster if our environment were to go through some sort of catastrophic change okay so now i've noted i've seen that there's two types of kind of gene therapy there's what do they call it somatic and germline one being on adults and one being on is it unborn fetuses or something or how what's that exactly yeah so somatic gene therapy is um when you are performing the gene therapy on a cell that that therapy will not be passed on to the next generation so if i have uh, breast cancer and so they go in and they do gene therapy on my breast tissues to stop the cancer from forming. I do have that uh, change DNA. I have that spliced DNA, but it's not in my germline. It's not in my eggs. So my children would not inherit that uh, cancer busting gene that I got given. You can, um, so conversely, what we're talking about germline therapy is where you edit the uh, embryonic cells especially when the sperm and the egg first fuse that is one cell so at that moment you can change anything you want and it will be in all of the cells after that you can also uh perform therapies Theoretically, it's more, it's easier on men because they have a constant cycle of sperm production, whereas women are born with all of the eggs that they're going to use. So, but you could uh, do therapy on the sperm producing genes and package new DNA into the sperm. And then that could be passed on to the children without the parent ever having that gene expressed in the rest of their tissues. So germline is more a heritable or organism-wide change whereas somatic is generally tissue or disease specific have we really been doing any type of research on a germline level therapy uh most scientists feel that the ethical questions were not really equipped to handle that sort of, of ethical quandary of should we be changing people before they have a say in what we're doing? Are we playing God? So there's sort of this, uh, it's kind of a voluntary moratorium on a lot of it. There are some uh, countries and labs that do perform germline testing, but generally I think they use embryonic cells that were non-viable in the first place. They had some other issue that would have prevented them from completely forming anyway. So they use them for as long as they will form to test their theories and to test the techniques, but all of the embryos end up dying anyway, which they were going to do in the first place. So that's 
kind of squeaking along the edge of how a lot of people feel, you know, what's okay. Um, but right now, most scientists don't want to participate in germline therapy because there's just too many questions that uh, as a society and a species, we're not really prepared to take on yet. I'm really glad that that's exactly uh, the first place you went with that, because that was kind of my next question. I don't know if you've seen the movie Gattaca and that, that kind of concept of a yep. genetically perfected, you know, society. But that's, that's definitely the, the ethical issues of there are, are major. And I don't know, is that even a place for science to determine? Is that a place for society to determine? I, I don't know that answer, but. Yeah, so um, that's why they have sort of voluntarily said, okay, we're not going to do it because they they don't feel, you know, scientists can be a little single-minded and they just kind of want to play and, and figure out this cool stuff and, and solve these problems. You know, they want to tinker, but we may not be ready for that yet. We may not be, handle, be able to handle that yet. And like you bringing up Gattaca, um, there were huge problems with that society, just massive, awful inequalities in that society that they constructed. And so scientists are saying, we're not at a point where we can confidently say that this will be a good idea. So we as a society need to be at a point where we can responsibly use germline therapy and they don't feel that one, that they should be the ones making that call and two, that we're really even there anyway. That is definitely a point to make. We have enough issues with our own society and dealing with different, you know, systematic level issues between races and genders and, and et cetera. When you start adding a significant advantage you know, and, and stuff like that isn't going to be free and probably not even cheap. So, of course, you're giving a more advantage to people with money there. Like, how much of a system issue are you going to create? Right, exactly. So are, are you going to have this sort of super elite group of people that afford all of these gene therapies to have smarter, stronger, faster children? Or on the other, you know, kind of end of the spectrum, are you going to go uh, brave new world and have these test tube babies that are bred stupid? obedient so that they'll, you know, happily operate an elevator for their whole lives. You know, you have to, you have to keep stuff like that in mind that as cool as it is, as amazing as science is, it's still just a tool. And so we have to be sure that the people handling the tools are going to build something that's wild for us and not just, uh, you know, go nuts and, and follow whatever crazy whim their heart desires. So as a society, we have to be ready to accept all of the responsibilities of genetic engineering and germline therapy before we start doing it. And I don't, like you said, with race, gender, sexual orientation, we're already super bad at that stuff. So I don't think we need to be adding in, you know, <laughs> gills or wings or, you know, <laughs> yeah. vision or, or whatever we think that would be a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, humans have a history of not making the best decisions with tools that they develop. So I think you're right there. But one thing I did take out of this is that, for the most part, the ethical issues are being approached by scientists, uh, at least here, voluntarily. So that makes me wonder about some of the other things that people are working on. When they talk about like GMOs and all the bad stuff going there, but it seems to me that scientists are aware of of ethical issues and they are preventing themselves for the most part of crossing those. So when it comes to things like GMOs, do you think that there's anything that we have to worry about there and what we're doing currently? So in, in my opinion, GMOs in and of themselves are not dangerous. And in a lot, I mean, there's always, like we're saying, it's a tool. 
there's room for abuse and we're not perfect so there's room for error but i think the benefit so much outweigh the risks that it it's kind of our i i would say we need to be looking at maybe not messing with humans yet but you know if we can make a drought resistant plant or uh you know we there's this thing called golden corn which is or sorry golden rice which is just it's rice that they put the gene for beta carotene in which is why it's golden because it creates uh, beta carotene looks orange but the rice is this golden yellow color because there's areas of the world where they don't have a lot of available beta carotene so they're malnourished and it causes like i believe it's rickets other physical abnormalities deformities birth defects and so just by replacing the regular rice with this golden rice all of that suffering can immediately be eliminated within one generation and i think that despite the room for abuse by some companies and ethical issues of uh, gmos we do need to accept Fact that that would be an extremely effective tool for helping people that are suffering or who are having difficulty existing in the place where they were born or the place they live. We don't all have the luxury of, you know, moving somewhere nicer if we don't like the weather. Like some people, that's just where they live. And so having plants that <clears throat> provide nutrients that they're missing or don't need as much water or are resistant to a pest are all things that we can do with GMOs and those would all be things that would help improve the lives of people around the world. And so to me, that seems like almost a no-brainer. Definitely. I think I have to agree there. So uh, we're going to end this segment. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about uh, stem cells and, and what those are and working awesome. with those. I don't care about the state of art Everything I care about is falling apart Don't want to hear about the new design I don't mind if I get left behind Look into his eyes They're the eyes of a man obsessed by sex You and I are going to get together and take things to the fully degenerate limit Are you in a state of ill-defined energy? Because I know a few superpositions. I want to be your asymptote so I can get arbitrarily close to you. Disturbed? Concerned? Maybe a little bit... intrigued? Physical Attraction is a new podcast where your host will attempt to explain concepts in physics, one chat-up line at a time. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter, at PhysicsPod. See you soon. Hi folks, want to hear something funny? <laughs> I'm cursed. That was a trailer for Physical Attraction Podcast. If just listening to a dash of science isn't enough science for you, and you want to hear more topics such as why radiation won't give you superpowers, or if you can really explain all of physics in a single equation, check it out at physicalattraction.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. We are talking with friend of the show Cassandra. Up next, we get into a little bit of stem cell science and bring it all together. All right, we're back uh, with Cassandra here, and we're going to be talking about stem cells. So I guess, you know, kind of like last section, let's start off with what is a stem cell? Stem cells are cells in the body that have undergone 
no or very little differentiation. So uh, in the case of, again, if we go back to that embryo, first cell that's formed from a combination of sperm and egg has all of the DNA for every other type of tissue in the body, but it's not expressing the characteristics of any of those things. So a stem cell is a cell that has not specialized into a type of tissue. Uh, so they're, they're sort of the progenitor cells of every other cell type in the body. Okay. So we talk a lot about them in, in the media, and there's a lot of, I don't know, almost kind of an evilness that surrounds them, and ethical issues abound and stuff like that. So let's kind of start off with what are they important? What can we do with them? So stem cells are important because if you think about the, the potential there, uh, stem cells can become any other type of cell. So for example, if we had good control over stem cell technology, if someone was, a, you know, was burned badly in a fire, instead of uh, what we do now, which is sort of kind of keep them covered and on pain meds and hope they don't get an infection, or we harvest skin from other parts of their bodies and slap it on there and, and hope that it drafts well. Um, it's very painful. It takes a really long time. We could potentially grow uh, stem cells that are given the instruction of, hey, you're going to be a skin cell, and then you put them on the, you know, the, the burned flesh, and they would start to grow like skin cells. So it would be similar to taking a graft, but you wouldn't have to be harvesting skin from anywhere else in the body, and it would be a lot faster, less painful for that burn victim to uh, have their skin sort of regrown so that they don't get these awful infections uh, that they're prone to. So it would also have, there'd be a lot less scarring uh, because the tissue would be growing as skin, not as scar tissue, which scar tissue forms a lot faster than our skin does when it's just growing normally. That's why it looks weird. So if you were able to grow just skin from stem cells, then you would have a much faster recovery and um, less impact on their life afterwards because they wouldn't be so scarred up. And then really you can apply that to anything from, you know, your liver has failed. And so instead of having to wait for an organ donor, we get these stem cells and we tell them, hey, you're going to be a liver. And they go, you got it, boss. And they become a liver and then you get a liver. Um, there's a lot of potential with stem cells because again, they can be anything. We just have to give them the right instructions. Okay, so I guess that's what makes them unique is they're essentially building blocks that they haven't turned into whatever they're going to be yet. So you say we give them instructions. Is that done on a genetic level? Is it done chemically? Like how how do we give them instructions? Is that something you're uh, you have any? So uh, remember we were talking about the Hox genes and how those cause the dorsal caudal differentiation. Uh, Hox genes, when we learn what they do and what they influence. We can use the Hox genes proteins uh, and sort of, I, there are experiments that have been done where they have bathed the stem cells in um, the protein signal from a Hox gene to get it to differentiate or to start forming in uh, that direction. You can also 
uh, like the ear that they grew on the mouse, um, that's, they put a scaffolding in place and then they put stem cells that they had uh, primed to become skin tissue onto the scaffolding and then it just grew up and, and replaced it and became a cartilaginous ear. So you do, it's not a genetic change because the stem cell already has all of the genes that it needs. What it needs is to know which ones to turn off, which ones to turn on, and in what order. And the way that it gets that information is chemical signaling. So we can use chemical baths to get the cells to differentiate, which is that super is cool to watch. Crazy. Because some, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, they'll they'll put a they'll put a stem cell on an agroclate so that it has something to eat, and then they'll wash it with the, the right chemical signals for the right amount of time and it will turn into a heart cell and start beating. It's freaking neat. So this sounds like amazing uh, opportunities for people with missing limbs, with damaged you know, hearts. We've got transplants now where the lists are forever. So it makes mm -hmm. us wonder what is it that's, that's stopping this from being in use everywhere? So again, we run into the the ethical issues of the fact that we're talking about um, experimenting on humans and using human cells for those experiments. The other issue is that there is a difference that not all stem cells are created equal. Um, there's embryonic stem cells and there's adult stem cells. And usually embryonic stem cells are omnipotent. So they can become any cell in the body, you name it, they've got the code, they can do it. Adult stem cells usually tend to be slightly differentiated. So we call those pluripotent cells. They can become any of a related family of cells. The example I'm most familiar with is uh, bone marrow stem cells can become any of the many, many types of white blood cells that we have in our body. All of those arise from the same stem cell, but that stem cell will not ever become a heart cell. Uh, even if you take it out and put it in a dish and ask it to become a heart cell, it will not do it. Uh, you have to regress it to the sort of pre-differentiated point where it's almost omnipotent again, and then get it to be a heart cell. And so that is another layer of difficulty. So what people want to do is they want to be able to use these embryonic or umbilical stem cells to experiment on and, and figure out how to, one, get the cells to do what we want them to in the first place. And then two, they'll use that information of seeing how we signal it to differentiate, to kind of work backwards to see, okay, so how can we get it to undifferentiate. But again, there's the ethical issue of can we take these cells that would have been a human and use them for experiments? Like there's, you know, there's religious and moral questions there. And that's usually what ends up tying up uh, stem cell research. Is there a way to get these stem cells uh, without, I guess the biggest issue is the idea of using aborted fetuses, whether it's medically aborted or naturally aborted from, you know, the female's body uh, versus mm -hmm. can we grow them? Is there other ways that we can get them? Uh, we can't, we can't grow them without having 
one to start with. We aren't able to build a stem cell. And like I was saying, with the adult stem cells, we are trying to figure out how to get them to regress from pluripotent differentiation back to the all-powerful omnipotent, but it's very difficult to do. They don't want to move backwards. Um, the DNA has been folded and uh, silenced or activated in such a way that allows the cell to become the different types of cells, and it doesn't really want to go back. It did a lot of work to get to that point. And again, we're sort of fighting the molecular machinery. So if we go in and we start activating things that it silenced, those cells can get the message, oh, I'm broken because that, that gene isn't supposed to be on and I can't turn it off. I should just die. So they will also do that. So that's why uh, stem cell researchers really want to have access to those uh, omnipotent embryonic cells because we're not very good at it yet. Um, in the future, it would probably be possible to use minorly differentiated cells, uh, pull them back to omnipotent cells, and then shoot them forward again in whatever direction we want. We're just not capable of doing that right now. And a lot of researchers feel like the fastest and best way to do that would be to have access to those embryonic cells, which is why they keep asking for it and people keep being upset about it uh, because it's it's really <laughs> the level that we are at and the uh technology and the understanding that we have those would really be just like the easiest way to do it but it's very upsetting to people so that's where that kind of back and forth comes from is that something that you can find uh like in blood like i remember when i used to work at a pathology lab when we'd have newborns uh, we would we would collect umbilical cord blood and, and sometimes even pieces of umbilical cord. Is that something that could be collected from that? Yes. So uh, umbilical blood will have a higher percentage of those uh, omnipotent stem cells than any other blood in the body because the umbilical cord is still performing a lot of adaptive functions right up until... The, the baby is born. So it needs to have those stem cells available for whatever it may need in order to keep the fetus healthy and functioning. So you can harvest them from umbilical blood, but again, you're going to get like a couple milliliters, you know, and uh, it's really hard to do like a, a massive double blind study on a couple milliliters of blood. Okay, so it's just about the quantity that you're capable of getting from that is really the roadblock there. Uh, I'm assuming yes. there's no real ethical, well, there are ethical issues in everything, but they're not the same as the ethical issues of, say, fetuses. Right, right. Because at that point, it's sort of, you know, the baby doesn't need the umbilical cord anymore. It's got, you know, everything else going for it now. It doesn't need that sort of pipeline to mom's blood supply. So the umbilical blood is, is at that point, in most cases, medical waste. So nobody really minds if you're borrowing those um, other than just the fact that it kind of falls under that sort of dark cloud of stem cell research. Uh, so people still don't <laughs> like it, uh, even if you're using umbilical blood. So let me ask you this. As somebody who works in this, this field, uh, do you think that we're erring too far on the side of ethical issues, not far enough? Uh, who do you think should be making those decisions? Do you think scientists should have a little bit of leeway when it comes to stuff like that? Or do you think we're right where we need to be? 
I think that um, the, my issue with most ethical conversations and moral conversations is there's always a lot of opinion or you know how I feel or versus how you feel type situations and what I would really like to see would I would like to see for these types of situations a more kind of structured approach to okay yes this is upsetting for a certain group of people um, but dying of liver failure is upsetting this group of people so which group really should like morally are we more obligated to research this maybe uncomfortable topic uh in order to actively save lives or do we need to acknowledge that it is you know for religious or moral or personal reasons it's a problem for some people that we're going to doing this research, we need to have some sort of objective way to weigh those things. And when we, you know, see which one is, you know, has a has more going for it or has stronger reasons for it, we really need to, um, you know, just head in that direction and understand that some people are going to be upset and, and that's fair and they have a right to be upset about that. But, um, you know, maybe their opinion in that case is not as compelling as somebody else's opinion. And, and I feel like without taking a very logical and uh, structured approach to these things, we're just going to end up yelling at each other for a really long time and nobody's ever going to be right. Yeah, it's not like we don't see that all of the time on the internet anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So is there, I guess the question is, is there any form of structure to this? Are scientists kind of left on their own? Is it like a punitive where they, they've crossed a line and they're punished for it as opposing to being able to ask permission ahead of time or? Oh, uh, there's, there's a huge amount of structure and, and regulations, especially if you want to do any sort of research on any sort of human tissue. Uh, it's, it's immensely regulated. It's very carefully watched over. Human uh, research, uh, genetic research for humans is all, there's a special ethics committee that reviews those cases. Uh, if you want to do gene splicing and just make a new organism, you have to prove that one, there's a point to it. You're not just Dr. Frankensteining in your lab somewhere. And <laughs> two, that uh, the organism won't cause any damage or harm if it were to escape or be released. There's a lot of red tape and safety measures in place um, to keep these uh, abuses from happening. And so even though there's a sort of a voluntary moratorium on the germline research, there are scientists doing it. I think uh, I'm fairly certain it's in China. There are some researchers doing germline therapy uh, experiments because they, they don't see a problem with it. And they're the ones that I think are using uh, embryonic cells that would have expired anyway, that were going to die anyway. So they don't see that as an issue and they see potential benefit to humanity as outweighing the sort of maybe messy moral questions. So there's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of people looking at these questions. And you know you have to remember too, like I mean, you know this. Working at NASA, science is very expensive. It is very <laughs> yes, it is. You know, the the equipment is expensive. Paying the people with that sort of specialized knowledge is expensive. So to, the idea of you know a, a rogue scientist just sort of off somewhere in the mountains fiddling with our genome is really 
far-fetched. They they really need the funding and they really need the permission. And if someone were to try and publish a paper without having gone through the proper channels to get permission to do that research, they would probably be arrested. That's good to know, I guess. It makes me feel better about uh, there's nobody just on the mountains in a cave making uh, mutant monkey humans. Yeah, no, there's no uh, there's no underground mutants being built anywhere. So, uh, you know, super massive uh, hamsters being bred in a, a cave or anything. It's all <laughs> it's all pretty carefully watched over because of the you know the issues that we've been talking about. There's a lot at stake in this sort of research, and so they they're keeping an eye on it. They understand what what's going on. So here's a question for you in which no comment is an absolutely acceptable answer. We're talking about how like people in China are kind of pushing the boundaries of what may or may not be ethical germline uh, uh, genetics and stuff. And we look at the history of the medical field and stuff and some of the advancements that we've made were actually due to some of the maybe not so ethical stuff done like in Germany and, and stuff like that. So is it, I mean, in your opinion, is it good that people are kind of walking this line of of you know ethically right do you think maybe we wouldn't actually get the advances that we might need if it weren't for them i think that it's important in any field of discovery whether it's biology chemistry or physics you name it any any time you're trying to understand something about the universe or push the boundaries of what we're capable of there's going to be things that we're not comfortable and fact that they maybe are scary or uncomfortable to us shouldn't in and of itself be a deterrent to progress. Um, you know, people used to be uncomfortable with women going to university, and now that's a totally normal thing in, in most of the world, that women also go to college and are doctors and get degrees and, you know, do stuff other than have babies. So. <laughs> the fact that we're discomforted by the idea of genetic research, by the idea of germline research is completely understandable, and sometimes it weirds me out too, and I work in the field, but we do, I think, always need to be just kind of leaning against what we're comfortable with, um, because that's the only way that we can progress and grow as a society and a species. And we need to be aware of these things going on so that we don't have, um, you know, like the Nazi Germany experiments or uh, the syphilis experiments in the US. Like we, we need to know what scientists are doing so that we can keep an eye on them so that they don't get tunnel vision and, and go too far. But we do need people that are willing to say, yeah, this is kind of, socially uncomfortable but this is a direction that we need to explore and they are willing to kind of lean into that a little bit so i think it's important that we have people that are walking the line all right well uh we're coming up to the end of our show here is there any other issues that you want to address any projects you want to plug or anything like that uh no not really i i really would just i would like to encourage everybody to uh, you know if there was anything about this that, that kind of piqued people's interest or just sounded cool, um, just go do a little more research on it. Go read a little bit more about it. Just learn a little bit more. If there's anything that I have learned 
even just from being in my field, I mean, there's so much to know just about genetics that I can, I can sort of just pop around and, and read about all sorts of different things and I can learn something new every week. And so if you're already the type of person who's listening to a super cool science podcast like this one, um, <laughs> you know, like just, just rewind to the section you thought was cool. If, if you were like, what the heck, spider silk goats, like there's, there's stuff on Netflix talking about, um, you know, gene therapy and transgenic animals and, and genetic mutations and splicing. Like, go watch them, you know, check it out on YouTube. Like, just go find more because the more we know, the more we can uh, synthesize new information and the more that we're able to relate to and interact with other people. And that's like, I think one of the best parts about being alive is, is finding all of this cool stuff and then being able to share it with all of the cool people that you care about. So like, just go explore and go learn. And even if it's not about genetics, which I mean, why wouldn't it be? It's so cool, but you know, <laughs> go, go learn and have fun and explore. It's totally worth doing. All right. Thank you so much for coming on and spending your time uh, talking about this stuff. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed it. I think it went really well. And hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future if we have a related topic. Uh, absolutely. Anytime. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. I hope you all enjoyed today's topic. Thanks again to Cassandra, a wonderful and knowledgeable guest, and thanks to you all for listening. I hope you all learned some good things today. If you have any follow-up questions, please be sure to leave a comment at facebook.com slash dash of science, and I'll make sure to get those answers to you either in a response on Facebook or in a follow-up episode. Remember that if you want your opinions to be based on evidence and fact, you need to always be open to new information. And be aware of your own cognitive biases, which is a topic we'll be talking about next time on A Dash of Science. We'll see you then. If you enjoyed the music on A Dash of Science, you can check out the musician and support his work at bradsucks.net.